Welcome to the Scientific Method. We are Pacific Northwest University of Health Sciences foray into the world of intellectually entertaining dialogue. From healthcare to pop culture, controversial conversations to advancements in scientific technology and more, we provide expert insight on science and society. We are an exercise in overcoming the noise and discovering the truth. Episode three. Hopefully you've heard episodes one and two. If I don't know not, if we're going to number the episodes, but... I mean, they'll be numbered on iTunes. They kind of do that automatically for okay. us. Okay, iTunes will do the work for us, but yep. make sure you check those out. Mm-hmm. Um, today's episode is maybe... I, I sent out a list of ideas to our faculty when we came up with this whole podcast idea, and... I had way too many to really put onto this list without overwhelming myself or anybody else. This one, however, was one that I could not take off the list because I was mm-hmm. so excited to have the conversation, mm-hmm. mostly because there's a ton of stuff that I have questions about on the conversation that I don't even begin to understand the answers to. And it's a little scary. I think it's kind of a scary topic, at least if you're into sci-fi at all, then it's a scary topic. If you never have watched a sci-fi anything in your life, then you probably don't care at all. See, the thing <laughs> the thing with that is, though, Yeah. you don't have a choice but to care now. Yeah, because you're listening to this podcast. Oh, no. I <laughs> oh. <laughs> that, oh, wait. That, too, yeah. Yeah. Don't you unplug those headphones. <laughs> but <laughs> but th- the, the topic that we're talking about here is artificial intelligence and how it relates to medicine specifically, but really just artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. And the reason I say you don't have a choice to care is because we are advancing, and there's really no doubt that we are going to continue advancing unless something terrible happens, which we're all going to cross our fingers so that doesn't happen. But if things continue to progress the way that they are progressing, technological advances in not only medicine but in society as a whole are going to explode and continue exploding. And if you picture 20 years ago before the iPhone and before... It's really hard to picture, though. It's hard to picture my life without my iPhone. It's hard to go back to that. Yeah. Now... It's a dark time. Now that we have them, they're basically an extension of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to imagine not having them. Where this conversation gets really interesting is imagining 20 years from now. So if we try to go back 20 years, we can't imagine not having an iPhone. If we go forward 20 years, I can't imagine what we are going to have. Right. And we tried to kind of dig into that a bit today with Dr. Robert Sorrells. So Dr. Sorrells is the Associate Dean for Preclinical Education and an Associate uh, Professor of Anatomy here at PNWU and He has a lot of experience, as he explains in the podcast, with the idea of artificial intelligence Mm -hmm. and mainly how it relates to medicine, but the field as a whole. He has a lot of experience in things that I don't have any knowledge about at all. Yeah. So just keep that in mind. (laughs) So in our conversation, we just discussed a whole bunch of questions that I had and that a lot of you probably have similar questions. Um, The idea of the growth of medicine and Mm -hmm. how certain diseases that we're plagued with now can hopefully be cured. And not only the cures to these diseases, but the future of going to the doctor's office. So with all of the uh, the technological advances that we've made in the past 
30 years, 20 years, five years even, Mm -hmm. the world of medicine has already changed drastically. And a lot of us don't really understand it or don't recognize it until we go to the doctor's office or until we have some sort of an issue that we have to have checked out. And you figure out that there's all these technologies already that exist that are sort of revolutionizing the way we take care of ourselves and the way that other people take care of us. The exciting part about this is that these technologies, just like the technology of the iPhone or the technology of anything else that we're using, they're expanding too, and they're growing, and they're growing at such a rapid rate that they're really going to revolutionize medicine, revolutionize the way that we take care of ourselves and the way that, again, people take care of us, or maybe not even people. Yeah. Or they're going to take over the world, and we're all going to die. We discussed that too. Yeah. We might become chickens or cats or something yeah that's probably unrelated (laughs) it's It's okay (laughs) i think i think the risk of us becoming house cats as uh elon musk has hinted at Mm -hmm. i mean that's something that's worth discussing because i don't really want to be a house cat i don't have that's not my aspiration yeah for life so we talk about all those things with dr sorrells today and there were a few times when i had to take a pause because he said a few things that not only were shocking and kind of hard to imagine, mm-hmm. but took a lot of time to really soak in because mm-hmm. they're such complex ideas that, again, we're not going to avoid these ideas. This is going to happen, and it's going to happen whether we like it or not. And I think it's really good to have an understanding of what is happening mm-hmm. and not only the benefits of it, but the potential downsides of it, the potential risks. Cassidy kind of joked about us becoming house cats. But when you get into this research and you start to slide down the rabbit hole of artificial intelligence, the thought of something more intelligent than us is a thought that we've never really faced before, but it is sort of an impending reality here. Mm -hmm. And what becomes of us when there's something out there that's more powerful than us, that can do our jobs better than we can, more functionally and efficiently than we can and do we become house cats do we cease to exist as functional pieces Mm -hmm. and do these things surpass us or are we able to take these advances in medicine and technology and use them for our benefit to not only improve our lives but to improve the lives of others and i think that's one of the things that we tried to touch on in the podcast as well as before you get too scared and turn this podcast off um where there are limitations within technology and i i liked talking with dr sorrells about that today in that there's not a huge reason for us to be scared and like terrified of the kinds of technology that are being developed more than anything these things are going to be used for good and they do have their limitations so they're not going to take over the world at least not immediately mm-hmm. so um i think that it's best to just keep an open mind with this kind of stuff because i know it can be a little bit easy to tune out or shut it off because it seems like too science fiction or it's a little bit frightening or something like that but really we're talking about a reality that um is currently taking place in the medical field but in all other fields as well and is that ultimately is going to be beneficial i think to society more than it is going to be somebody turning us into a cat yeah (laughs) i still don't want to be a cat i don't want to be a cat either i'm a dog guy yeah can i be a dog (laughs) i prefer that (laughs) so what's going on in medicine today what sort of technologies do we already have that 
many people don't recognize as existing already. What's coming? What's going to change in medicine? Mm-hmm. Is our doctor not going to be a doctor anymore, but instead going to be a hologram of a doctor? Mm-hmm. Outside of the doctor's office, what's going to happen to us? So we already have these iPhones that are basically extensions of ourselves. How does that technology grow into us and how do we grow as a society now that we have access to that technology all the time Mm -hmm. what's going to change is there a possibility that we can take that information that's on our iphone and implant it into ourselves or take our information and implant it into something like a computer and create sort of an intelligent being outside of what we've always known as an intelligent being All these questions and all these ideas are things that we discuss on this podcast. And if you've ever wanted to know whether or not you could realistically implant a chip in yourself to speak French. We're going to let you know. Yeah. Kind of. Listen in (laughs) because I wanted to know that. I wanted to know that. For some reason, I decided to ask Dr. Sorrells along with a lot of other questions. (laughs) So without further ado. Here is our conversation on artificial intelligence and the future of medicine with Dr. Robert Sorrells. So, I said this conversation. Certainly. One spot that we really should start is just the idea of what artificial intelligence is so for anybody who's listening and even me because some of these ideas are so far (laughs) from my head even that it's tough to really comprehend but what is artificial intelligence and what's this whole discussion about you know that i really like that question because a lot of people have a lot of different ideas about what ai is Uh, so i worked for a year with the artificial intelligence group of georgia when I would tell people that, they would ask me about robots we were building and things like that. And that's not what artificial intelligence is, mm-hmm. although it can be used for that. So basically, artificial intelligence is when you get machines to perform things that we consider to be human intelligence, like visual recognition, voice recognition, pattern recognition, reading text, reading mammograms, things like that. And artificial intelligence works by taking processes that are involved in human intelligence and writing those into algorithms and then putting those algorithms in the machines and having the machine develop its own learning protocol from that. So are machines capable of, at this point, those processes? Oh, yes, yes, yes. They've been around since the 90s, yeah. So what sort of things are they already doing? Because I know that even just that thought process of a machine being able to have a thought process is kind of confusing to think about. Right, and it, I think the confusing thing is the is the idea of the of the word thought. You know, what is a thought? Yeah. You know, because mm-hmm. a computer is just zeros and ones, or you know, seven and four millivolt charges. However, you want to think about that. But when you think about the human brain, when you think about neurons, neurons work electrochemically as well. So they're very similar. And I I don't want to give the listeners the impression that the brain is a computer because the brain is not a computer. Mm-hmm. But what we're trying to do is instantiate computer algorithms that reflect or have the same sort of output as human processing. So for example, um, voice recognition um, is an example of artificial intelligence that's, that can be run on uh, any type of computer. Um, there are serial computers that everyone's familiar with. There are also parallel computers. Um, and p- what parallel computers do is that they solve multiple constraints simultaneously. So these computers actually learn. 
they can learn from experience and they can learn from input. So you can show them thousands of mammograms, for example, okay? And they begin to recognize when a cancer is present and not. And in fact, they can outperform human radiologists uh, once they've trained on enough images, on enough radiographs. That's a really interesting idea because when you put it sort of uh, against the human thought process and you look at a machine, it's capable of learning without ever getting tired of it. And if you put a thousand mammograms in front of me by 200 of them, I'd probably be burnt out. But that one could, I mean, relatively speaking, it could go forever. So is there really a limit to the capabilities that they have of learning and expanding? Well, I think uh, the, the new processing uh, has allowed these programs to be able to run without basically choking on themselves, okay? Mm -hmm. And especially with the advent of, of parallel computers. So what parallel computers do, so, so artificial intelligence are usually written uh, from neural networks. And what neural networks are, they're based on a, on a theory called connectionism. And this is what I was trained in in graduate school. Mm -hmm. So this is an idea you have a lot of different nodes that are hooked together with different constraints, mm -hmm. okay? And that's very similar to the way neurons work. A lot of neurons are connected together. Some are excitatory, some are inhibitory, or at least their neurotransmitters are. Um, and so the, the, the uh, advent of parallel processing computers is a perfect format for these parallel distributed processing algorithms. So I think that the, the technology is there now. And in fact, what we have is we have computers that can learn almost anything that we can put in front of them. And I think that's the fear that a lot of people have is that, is that this may be an unconstrained development of, of a technology. Yeah, that's... As I've read more and more about this, some of them really take you down the rabbit hole. Some of those articles exactly. where they're talking about things that are, quite frankly, kind of terrifying. Because for as long as humans have been around, we've been the most powerful, most thought-processing beast on the planet, really. And then something comes along that can not only surpass us, but surpass us in a way that kind of leaves us in the dust because it doesn't have a limit, it seems. And... That thought's a little frightening. I think it is frightening for some people, but I think something that needs to be stressed is that what we need to talk about here is human-computer interfaces. Mm -hmm. And so the, a human can be better through this interface with the computer, and the computer can be better through this interface with the human. So I think what's scary is these ideas that these computers are going to go out and develop some type of superintelligence, and that development of superintelligence will happen very quickly. In other words, like in a matter of a few days, Okay, mm -hmm. and this is what scares people because then the computer basically, if we're if we're writing algorithms to mimic human processing, then what about things like ethics? Can we can we uh, program ethics into these computers? And then if we do, and they develop this super intelligence, will they be super ethical? Will they will they beyond be beyond us in their ethical reasoning? Mm -hmm. You know, so this whole idea of basically that the future is going to be these robots that are going to dominate us some kind of extinction metaphor, you know, yeah. where, where they'll come back and destroy us like Frankenstein. Yeah. I think it's not true because the future doesn't really happen to us. So AI is not happening to us. We're creating artificial intelligences, and so we're constantly interfacing with them. Yeah. So before we go forward in a spot that we maybe should have started, what's your background with artificial intelligence? Certainly. My, uh, my Ph.D. at the University of Georgia was in cognitive neuroscience. And then when I was working there, I was introduced to a gentleman who worked in connectionism, uh, which is parallel distributed processing. Um, and this is where all the neural networks came from and these big ideas of these powerful neural nets. And all these programs like pattern recognition programs, these, these radiograph reading programs, all use this parallel distributed processing. And this guy introduced me to this idea that neurons basically do math. 
And I hated that idea it's like, because the brain is not a computer. It's wet, okay? I've taken hundreds of brains out of skulls. They look nothing like a computer, and they really don't operate like a computer. So I went into artificial intelligence to basically shoot it down, to say it was not a proper method for modeling human thinking. The further I got into it, the more I realized <laughs> that it was actually correct. So, <laughs> and then from that, I took a postdoc at the University of Georgia uh, with the artificial intelligence group there. We worked on some grants, uh, the Presence, Technolo excuse me, Presence Technology Initiative, uh, which was a grant where we tried to uh, gamify education uh, by using things called multi-user domains or MUDs. So they were uh, little rooms, virtual rooms that uh, students would go into to be an artificial intelligence embedded in each room. And once a student could, could perform at the, at the same capacity as the artificial intelligence, they got to go into another room. Um, and then we also worked with the uh, Office of Naval Research to develop some algorithms for uh, testing for the recruits. Um, and so I, I got really down into the trenches of doing artificial intelligence and seeing its output um, in educational and medical um, um, uh, arenas. And from there, I was hooked on this idea of artificial intelligence. Now, since then, how have you seen it uh, sort of grow and expand? Because I imagine something, technology in and of itself, two years from now is so much different than it is today. So Exactly. I think that's, that's the part that that we're worried about, that everyone's worried about, is this unconstrained technology, because technology multiplies exponentially. And as we develop these artificial intelligences, they can create their own artificial intelligences to help them out. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and then you can copy these things, so they can be multiplied over and over again. Yeah. Now, that idea is one that I kept reading about when I was sort of researching this, which is the idea of, again, coming back to the idea of no limits. There's no constraints that they can have on these, and that's where I think the worry comes in. So with the idea of something being able to think as potentially clearly as we can and then recreate that thinking in another being and possibly use that being of its own uh, growth, what happens there? How, do, how, how Where's the end to this, and will we be sort of surpassed by things like this? Well, I think, I think it's going to be a, a – a mutual evolution, let's say. Um, and so we can be augmented by these artificial intelligences, you know, kind of this idea of a cyborg. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, this, it seems like uh, science fiction, but, you know, we have lots of ci cybernetic devices now yeah. that are used in humans. We have artificial eyes, we have artificial limbs that can be moved. So we're, we're using this to kind of augment our own potential. But I sort of see it as an engineering problem. Okay, so recently there was in the news a, a security robot that fell down some stairs and drowned in a pool of water, and everyone was saying this robot committed suicide because he, <laughs> he hated his job. <laughs> you know, so to prevent the robot apocalypse, we could just all go down some stairs. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> um, which is also brings to another interesting point is that these artificial intelligences are very good at some things, but not very good at other things. Mm -hmm. So, right. for example, if you imagine a bird flying through the forest, the number of computations needed for that bird not to hit a tree are amazing, yeah. okay? Computers have a very difficult time with real-world navigation. They're getting better, okay? So we see mm -hmm. things like vacuum cleaners that can, that can, the Roombas that can vacuum our house, okay? They're getting better at that, but they don't have the same um, physical nimbleness that we have, okay? So it's a very constrained type of 
intelligence. And I think it's a it's a engineering problem. We need to solve that problem and build those things into these as we as we move forward. Which is why the robot fell down the stairs. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's why that the robot sense. fell down the stairs. Yeah. yeah. I think one of the things that that frightens people is that what you can do with an artificial intelligence, um, it's called genetic programming. And so what you do is you just take a bunch of different programs and you clip them up in little pieces and you actually let these programs mate with each other, in a loose way of speaking, and they evolve and the strong programs live, the weaker programs die, and eventually what you have is a program that does something you had no idea it could do before mm -hmm. you started this genetic programming. So these genetic programming uh, uh, artificial intelligences are unconstrained. Um, and I think that's what people like Elon Musk are talking about when they're saying that uh, the biggest threat to our society today is unconstrained artificial intelligences mm -hmm. that are these intelligences that are built uh, basically randomly mm -hmm. um, without basically a, without a goal in mind. Yeah. And how do you see those developing in the future then? Like, do you agree with him that they could be out of control or do you think there's still some limitations? Well, I think that? there's there's some limitations can be built into them. Okay. Okay. So the idea, and it seems like, you know, we've probably seen a dozen movies based on this theme. Right. The idea is that the monster gets out of the box somehow yeah. and we can't control the monster anymore, you know. Mm -hmm. But again, it goes back to an engineering problem. Mm -hmm. And the thing with genetic programming um, is that a lot of times these things are used to solve very specific problems uh, but then the program develops other ab abilities to solve different types of problems, and it's, that's the sort of unconstrained thing that we're worried about. Right. Um, but as long as we keep these things focused, um, and, and genetic programming may, may turn out to be something that's not a productive use of time mm -hmm. because it takes a lot of computations to do something like that, and a lot of the programs that are generated are worthless, just like ha happens in evolution. Um, so, again, I, I think it comes back to the idea that we need to have a clear understanding of what we want to do with artificial intelligence, for example, applying it to, the, to, to medicine and the future of medicine. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll come back to that idea, certainly, because I want to talk about medicine before. But before we get there, one word that I want to bring up, which I had highlighted a few times and which I kind of wanted to make sure that we said, was the word cyborg. Because it's a very strange word when people hear it, and automatically they go towards those sci-fi movies and all these extremes. They go to the Terminator. Um, but it's really not that far from where we are right now. So when I was thinking about this, I started thinking about human intelligence in general and how far we've come in the past few years even. And the fact is our capabilities at this point already are far beyond what they've ever been in human history. If you were to ask me a question right now, I have a cell phone in my pocket, and odds are 95% of the people that you talk to around here do. And they could pull out their cell phone and realistically find an answer to that question in some general sense and expand their intelligence immediately because it's sort of people treating cell phones now as almost an extension of themselves. They are. You don't go anywhere without it. It's like a baby. So the idea of cyborg becomes sort of frightening, I think, when you hear a word like that. But think that we're already sort of operating on a field that's similar to a cyborg field. Oh, certainly, yeah. There, there are plenty of prosthetic devices that are hooked into human nervous systems mm -hmm. and function under the command of the human that they're attached to. So we have artificial limbs now that can be controlled by the corticospinal tract. Mm -hmm. um, we're very close to having artificial vision, so we'll have an artificial eye. But I think one of the things that's, that's interesting about this is that 
So we, when we go to Cyborg, again, we go back to this idea of Frankenstein. You know, and, the, and the idea of Frankenstein was basically that human technology is going to come back and destroy us. You know, so, mm-hmm. And that book was written 200 years ago. So mm-hmm. you know, we've <laughs> had this idea ever since the Industrial Revolution that our machines are going to come back and get us somehow. Yeah. Um, but the, the future of, of sort of the human-computer interface um, is to, to, uh, to augment our realities and to augment our, our scope of influence. Um, so, for example, people wear Fitbits, mm-hmm. and Fitbits are, in essence, like a cybernetic uh, sensory system. Mm-hmm. And then all of those data are sent up into the cloud, mm-hmm. and so now in the cloud are millions of data points of individuals' heartbeats, their blood pressure, their sleep patterns, yeah. and these things go unanalyzed. So someone could go into the cloud, and there's a tremendous amount of bio data there that's mm-hmm. specific to individuals. So I think some of the, the frightening things about the cyborg revolution, let's say, and artificial intelligence revolution, is the harvesting of these data by other people, not mm-hmm. so much the unconstrained artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. because I think, again, that's a software and an engineering problem. We can solve that at the level of the engineers. But generating these tremendous amounts of data from these programs produces some type of, of security risk as well. What other sorts of data are being collected from us? Not just I know it's not just Fitbits because I carry my cell phone, and sometimes I see ads based on it seems like things that I talked about, <laughs> and it's – it that almost happened creeps to me the sometimes. other day. <laughs> so what sort of uh, advancements are being made in almost spying on an individual and that data being collected, and how could that be used in a conversation like this? Well, that's the thing is that these things could be used for a lot of good things. So epidemiology, public health, um, uh, uh, determining what social determinants of health are. So there's some wonderful things these data can be used for if they're mm-hmm. harvested in the, in the correct way. Uh, but, uh, of course, they can also be used for things like generating ads. So you're, perhaps you haven't walked very much today, and then all of a sudden you get an ad on your phone saying, here's a program that will track your steps, and then you buy that, okay? And then you don't, your blood pressure goes up a little bit, and here comes an advertisement for a blood pressure medicine. So we're getting a very almost like customer-driven um, delivery of information to us based on our own biodata. Now, the information that's out there now, you've mentioned some of the uses that it's already being put towards in medicine. Could you talk about some of those things that are currently going on in medicine that use artificial intelligence or pieces of intelligence from data that have been collected? Sure. There's, um, so everyone's probably seen the commercials about Watson. Mm-hmm. Um, and what Watson is is an artificial intelligence. And, w- again, what artificial intelligences do is they can solve problems because they can handle multiple constraints simultaneously. So, for example, if there's three people in this room right now, and let's say that I like you very much, and I don't like her very much, but the two of you like each other. Mm-hmm. So we have a little network here where you and I are attracted, we're repelled, <laughs> so the network moves around according to those three little constraints. Yeah. Okay? Now, most problems have millions of constraints. So these computers, what they do is they can solve multiple constraints simultaneously. So, for example, what Watson does is a very simple thing. Watson goes out and looks at all of the published research on a topic, for example, cancer. 
and then they can then then Watson can look at specific types of cancer that the particular patient has and then Watson can search through all these data and say okay here we had this effect from this drug but here's a study that was that was counter to that so it can balance all those different constraints and then give an output for a diagnosis and for a treatment protocol that's consistent with the individual person there so that's a very powerful tool tool because the 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 physician can go and look up all this stuff but it would take her years yeah. to right. go through all the all the information and watching can go through it very very quickly so one of the things is just search through literature to find sp specific types of treatments other things are for example I talked about the mammograms so uh, computers can be trained to look at, at mammograms and then they're trained so basically after they see thousands of mammograms that are positive so you have to have a human there mm -hmm. that are positive for breast cancer and then thousands of, of mammograms that are negative for breast cancer, pretty soon the machine can pick out breast cancer at the same rate or better than the radiologist. But here's the interesting thing, because the computer can now find things that the radiologist can't find because the radiologist is trained for very particular things. I'm looking for a white blob here. I'm looking for a pocket here. But the computer doesn't know what it's looking for. So it compares every single voxel, every single pixel in the, in the image to every other pixel in the image. So billions of comparisons. So the machine can find predictors of cancer that aren't visible to the human eye. So that's where these things have the advantage is that they can learn what to do and you don't have to teach them so you don't constrain them to a particular feature, for example, of breast cancer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we have diagnosis protocols, we have um, uh, prognosis um, um, protocols that basically say what drugs would be effective here, what outcomes would be, what would be counterindicated. So most of the things, we have robots that can do surgery. Mm -hmm. um, so most of the things that physicians can do can be done by these artificial intelligences. Now, that's, I think, what frightens people. It's like, are we going to replace humans with artificial intelligences? No. We're going to give the doctors the opportunity to sit back and think more globally about, about disease and about social determinants of health. So that's what they should be doing. But instead, they're busy seeing patients all day long because that's what they do. So these artificial intelligences will allow the physicians more time to think creatively about their art and their craft and their science. Yeah, it keeps the element of the human touch in there, but also kind of expands the ability to have extra time to do outside of what they're already doing. Right. Mm -hmm. Sort of allows for that expansion. Um, and is most of that currently being practiced right now? Like all of those, the robots that look at mammograms and like all the stuff that you just explained is that stuff that's currently being used it is currently being used okay. but uh, as you would expect there's a big pushback against this right. because again the idea is that people are afraid we're trying to replace humans with machines mm -hmm. when that's not the goal the goal is to augment the humans and to give humans the things that we do much better than machines is come up with novel solutions to problems creative solutions humanistic things, we can touch our patients, we can talk to our patients. Mm -hmm. So the computer is, is giving the physician another tool okay. instead of replacing the physician. So right now there's pushback from that because people think I'm going to be replaced. Right. Yeah. Is there any work to give those computers and those programs those tools that they're already missing? So the idea of a doctor being able to go into a room and speak to somebody and comfort them and sort of connect to them on a human level, the idea of a, a touch or a real conversation are there developments that you know of or that are going on right now that are working to improve the quality of that in something like a, a machine that could go into a room yes there is and and it's not very effective now okay mm -hmm. and in fact what always happens these technologies are basically x 
apted. They're, they're taken away and used for a different purpose, and usually that's marketing, finance, something like that. Yeah. So computers have developed the, the ability to recognize facial expressions. So a computer knows if you're happy, if you're sad, by looking at your face. Okay? These technologies are supposed to be used in things like medicine, where the computer can basically, when you're expressing pain, the computer will ex express empathy for that pain, although mm -hmm. the computer probably doesn't have the empathy, it can mm -hmm. express it. Okay? Yeah. Um, but these programs have, have been used in things like artificial intelligences in ATM machines. Mm -hmm. So an ATM will show you, you're on a camera when you're on an ATM, the ATM will show you an ad while you're, while you're uh, uh, doing your, your banking business. Mm -hmm. If you frown during the ad, it won't show you the ad again. Really? If you oh, smile, wow. it'll show you an additional ad like that. Okay? So here's these things that are being designed to basically help computer and human interface by sort of giving a, an emotional component to the computer, but they're not being used in that way. The, the other part about, about the touch of the human being, robots are very good at precision surgery, okay? Mm -hmm. um, and if, if we had more time, we would go into the nanobot discussion, okay? But that's a completely different <laughs> podcast, okay? Um, but things like touch, um, they're, human beings are primates and all primates are social animals. And primates respond incredibly to other to conspecific touch, um, and that's something that, like walking down a set of stairs, which is very easy for a human, very difficult for a robot. Uh, it's the same type of thing. A touch from a robot, other than a, a, a laser incision, <laughs> um, and a touch from a human being are completely different things. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's something that will never be replaced. Is that Monkeys respond to another monkey touching them. An ape responds to another ape touching them. And humans are going to respond to another human touching them. And that's the beauty of osteopathic medicine is that when, when, when patients go to see their doctors, they leave the office feeling better right away because a big part of osteopathic medicine is the whole body, and part of that is being able to touch your patients in a way that will make them feel better instantly. So I think that's something that the computers and AIs will never be able to do. Now you talked about the uh, the possibility of doctors being able to have more time for creative thought and innovation because of these programs that take all these tasks that would normally take so much time and they're able to do them in an instant. Is there any sort of development in the idea that these programs could think creatively? That you can you could program something like a random generator mm -hmm. into them, and then again, like genetic programming, you have different sort of ideas, if you will, rising to the top and then surviving if they're, if they're pragmatic. Um, so you can build that into it, but there's the, the idea of human creativity, like the idea of human thinking. We need to understand that AIs, when we say does an artificial intelligence machine learn or think, we need to make sure we can define what learning and thinking are from the human perspective. Mm -hmm. Because instantiated on that different architecture and that, and that machine architecture, we don't know what that's like, so we don't know what thinking is like in that, in that atmosphere. What, so what we say in the science is that they're, they're functionally isomorphic. Mm -hmm. The outcome is the same, but what's going inside that black box, we don't have any idea. You know, so, so the ability to plan creativity into a computer would be possible, but I'm not sure we really understand what creativity is in humans yet. Mm -hmm. The same thing with thinking. You know, human brains don't store memories but computers store information. Our brain does not store information. So we're trying to make something that's functionally equivalent, okay, but in no way is it structurally isomorphic. We don't know what's going on on the inside. There were some, uh, as I was researching this, again, the rabbit hole, and uh, I started reading about the brain, and 
the understanding of taking what we already know about the brain and being able to move that into a different program. And one thing that kept coming up is how little it seems we actually know about how the brain functions, thought and creativity and processing. And one quote that I read that I really liked was, if the human brain were so simple that we could understand it, we would be so simple that we couldn't. Yeah, that's exactly true. Yeah. And the we need to take a step back and know that we do understand a lot about the brain. We understand a lot about how the brain works. We don't know how it's all put together. That's what we don't understand, what thinking is, what memory is, what intelligence is, what creativity are, okay? But I can tell you very specifically how the corticospinal tract works. I can tell you very specifically how the anterior lateral system works. So we know a lot about the nervous system and the brain, but we don't know how that comes to produce humanity. So there's another level of analysis that's been beyond our grasp. So, um, again, to go back to Elon Musk, has this idea that we'll be able to upload our consciousness into a computer. Mm-hmm. Well, first, we better figure out what consciousness is before we upload it into a computer. And second, that's, that's a misunderstanding of how the brain works, how the brain works at this higher level. Mm-hmm. Okay? So consciousness and thinking are, in essence, an, they're epiphenomenons. They emerge out of the functioning of the nervous system. We understand the functioning of the nervous system, but we don't understand this emergent property of thinking, consciousness, self-awareness. Mm-hmm. So another thing is that can we program self-awareness into an artificial intelligence without understanding how it happens in the, in the human to begin with? Mm-hmm. So this idea of being able to upload your consciousness into a machine and live forever is pretty far-fetched because once the brain stops functioning, all those emergent properties go away as well. Mm-hmm. So much to think about and it's so strange to think about really because you start to think like you said you try to get into the idea of a machine being able to think but as you do that you have to come back to your own thinking and processing and it's even hard to understand it within yourself the idea of growth and creativity and sort of what makes a person a person all become questions when you discuss taking what makes a person a person and putting it into a non-person so I think that that's where, when I was reading a lot of this stuff, I felt like I was underwater a few times. Yeah. Well, it, it is a rabbit hole. And when we, what I talk with my students about is, are you your brain? Mm-hmm. So we have, we have things like personal responsibility. So you commit some act. Who's responsible for that? Is your nervous system responsible for that? Are you responsible or is society responsible for that? So are you your brain? It's kind of a, a philosophical way of thinking about it, but that's not what we are. We're not our brain. Without our brain, we're not ourselves, mm-hmm. but we're not our brain. And so these, th- that's that aspect of, of humanity um, is something that I think is what helps us get up every day and think about doing stuff because we're not robots. We're not artificial intelligences. We're living, breathing organisms that are com- completely complicated. So, for example, at the most complicated computer program and the most complicated computer architecture is much more simple than a protein in your cell. Mm-hmm. So, and then we are not just an, a, a conglomeration of proteins. We're something more than that. So it's a wonderful exercise in, in uh, philosophy and in humanity to think about these ideas because it helps us define what we are and helps us define our personal agency and things like morality. Where does morality come from? Mm-hmm. Does it come from a lot of neurons firing, or does it come from something that, that comes out of that, some end process? A lot of the things that we've spoken of so far in the advancements in artificial intelligence seem to be the ability to recognize certain diseases or certain things that are wrong with the body. 
outside of that, outside of just recognition and then sort of passing it on to somebody who could treat it or even coming up with treatments, what sort of advancements are being made that could physically treat those? So we've talked about the idea of implants. So if somebody's deaf, they could have an implant that would allow them to hear. And you talked about vision and working on some sort of an implant that would allow people to see. Are there other things that are working through the idea of artificial intelligence that are sort of expanding that technology? Well, I think the the combination of artificial intelligence with the advent of three-dimensional printing um, and being able to to engineer things at the almost at the atomic level, we're being able to build tissues and build organs now. Mm-hmm. So being able to grow and harvest organs, and those things are governed by artificial intelligences, but they're not really artificial intelligences yeah. themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to be able to have there. There are of course robots that can be tro- controlled remotely. So that's not an artificial intelligence, but the next the next thing to do is just to supplant that remote control, which is by a physician, by an artificial intelligence. So you'll have very uh, basic types of surgery uh, performed by robots, um, and hopefully there would always be some kind of human element there because healing is more than the surgery. Healing is the touch and the care that's given after the, all the procedures happen. Um, and so I think there's a there's a host of things that we haven't even thought of yet. Um, that will emerge from artificial intelligences being able to interface better with humans as we move forward. We've brought up Elon Musk a few times, and he seems to be one that when you Google artificial intelligence or the future of it, or especially in medicine or just in human expansion, his name pops up quite a bit because some of the ideas that he has are really future thinking and pretty extreme, and he talks about the risks associated with it. And kind of what we need to do in his opinion in order to prevent what he calls becoming sort of house cats to these superior intelligences that are going to outweigh us and outpass us by years and years and years beyond what we can even imagine. Um, One thing that he talks about is a brain machine interface. So they call it a BMI. I don't know if that's a term that's exclusive to him or if that's a term that's throughout the entire field. But the idea of this and his hopes for it is that it can combat eventually a lot of disorders, um, things like depression and eating disorders, and even things such as ALS and Parkinson's disease. Um, the way that I heard it described is that many of these neurological conditions like ALS, they don't happen as a result of a dysfunctional brain, but instead the signals aren't really reaching their intended destinations. And he's working on some sort of a computer interface that kind of bypasses that where the signal actually does reach the destinations through whatever sort of programs he's working to create an implant and in turn would change and improve millions and millions of lives. So have you had any experience or uh, any understanding of programs like that? And what's the future or the potential of things like that? Yeah, I think that those ideas kind of help draw the line, I think, where these things can be done. And, and I think that I applaud Elon Musk for his insight and his creative thinking, um, and I think he has some, some wonderful ideas. So this idea of being able to boost signals um, is a very good idea. Uh, so, for example, very recently we had, um, this was at first done with non-human primates and has now been done with humans, um, we can have one individual sitting in a room with electrodes on his brain controlling the movements of a hand of another human being in a different room. 
So what this looks like is action at a distance, which of course was the, one of the first things that science declared was impossible, mm -hmm. action at a distance. Um, now because of quantum physics and quantum mechanics, we know that action at a distance happens all the time. But this is one of the first clear experimental uh, uh, indications that the signals in the brain could be harnessed and then coded into electronic signals and sent somewhere else. Mm -hmm. So for example, to another part of the body or to another person's body. So in other words, we're hijacking the person's corticospinal tract. And I think these are wonderful solutions to things like um, uh, MS, uh, to things like ALS, mm -hmm. um, where that is what the problem is, is. The problem is that you have demyelination or you have some other sort of neurodegenerative problem. Um, and so it's a signal boost that you need. Mm -hmm. So, and again, that's the part of the nervous system that we understand very well. We almost have that down to the protein level, how that works, okay? But we don't know how that leads to depression, okay? Or how that leads to the, the affective components of things like schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. So I think that, so uh, Elon Musk is, is very correct in saying that this will be a, a breakthrough in the future. Mm -hmm. So, for example, uh, working with um, uh, 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 Army vets, uh, in, anyone in the military who's had uh, 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 injuries, um, we can harness their intact brain to help them uh, begin to move those body parts again. And through physical therapy, they can regain use of their legs or they can have artificial legs. So this is a breakthrough. But then to go from there into uploading our thoughts into a computer is that level where we can't do that anymore because that's the part we don't understand. What are we uploading? Mm -hmm. hey, I know that I, when I can upload a, a, an electrical signal that's moving through the body, but I don't know what it means to upload my ideas of how much I love my mother. Right, because it's more of a physical versus, like, I mean, it's still going through the body and everything, but moving an arm is like a physical, tangible thing, I think, rather than, like, the thought. Like, there's nothing to, like, grasp there. It's just a thought, you right, know? Yeah. So it's and hard the to thought like comes out of something physical, yeah, obviously. Yeah, definitely. You know? and, and the thought itself is not a... Uh, a non-physical thing, right? But it's but it's not the same type of physicality. It's as more abstract. It's than more it, abstract. Yeah. It's not the same type of physicality as moving your arm. Right, you know? that makes sense. All of these ideas seem to stem from the idea of taking what the brain can do and sort of implanting it into a machine. But there are things that machines can't do that we've already spoken of, or machines can do that the brain simply can't. Um, one really fascinating idea in this conversation was the reverse of that. So rather than taking a brain function and figuring out how a machine could do it, it would be taking a machine function and figuring out how the brain could do it. So what are the advances being made there, or what are the conversations that need to be had with that idea? Well, I think that, well, things like computer chips mm -hmm. um, are the sort of the first way mm -hmm. to think about that. Um, and so you can have what computers do very well is take a large amount of data and go through it very algorithmically. Um, but human thinking is very different than that. Human thinking is very heuristic. We take a lot of shortcuts, and we make a lot of mistakes. Mm -hmm. That's the one thing that we're very good at, making mistakes. And that's why we learn. And that's where our creativity comes from, is making those mistakes. Um, and so things like um, uh, blood pressure regulators, um, thyroid regulators, uh, different things that can be done almost like a thermostat control. Um, are these ideas of taking things like computer chips and these things and, and putting them into human beings to basically control some of our functions that our brain or our nervous system has lost the ability to control for. Now, Musk, again, I feel like I keep coming back to him because when I started reading anything about what he's doing, that was where the rabbit hole really came in, where you start sliding down a pretty steep hill. But he launched a company that's called Neuralink, which 
says aims to implant tiny electrodes in the brain that may one day upload and download thoughts. Is there a possibility there, or is that sort of sci-fi thinking? Well, I'm a scientist, and what I love about being a scientist is being wrong. <laughs> that is the beauty of science. Is when That's the same reason I went into artificial intelligence. I knew it could not be right. Yeah. <laughs> and then my mind was changed. Wonderful. Okay. So I hope maybe this is the same thing. So I'm very adamant that he's wrong about this. Mm -hmm. But it would be wonderful to find out that I'm wrong about this as well. Okay. Mm -hmm. So again, it goes back to this idea that we don't really understand what a thought is. Mm -hmm. um, we can see what it is behaviorally. We can measure it behaviorally. Um, we can talk about it as being the activity of certain parts of the brain. But we really don't understand how the brain comes together. So I can tell you what the motor cortex does. I can tell you what the sensory cortex does. I can tell you what the hippocampus does, the amygdala. I can tell you what all these brain structures do, but I can't tell you how they produce consciousness, self-awareness, and thought. So until we figure that out, then what are we uploading into this machine? Mm -hmm. The other part about that is, that is to, to follow his kind of apocalyptic thinking is that if you do copy yourself, if we do, so I, let's say I'm wrong, and we can figure out how to copy these emergent properties and instantiate them in a computer program, then what's to stop someone from copying you? Okay? Now there's a thousand versions of you. Yeah. Okay? So there's this weird thing that people that have more money can make multiple copies of themselves. So, I mean, this is a huge rabbit hole we're going down here, yeah. okay? Because, <laughs> because the idea of, you know, Humans want to live forever for some reason. I have no idea. I hope that I don't live forever, okay? <laughs> but this idea has been with us for a long time. What is, what is immortality like? Mm -hmm. And I think that those dreams um, are, are infused in these ideas of being able to upload our thinking and consciousness into a machine when I would just back up and say, well, why would we want to do that? Yeah. Why? What's, what's the reason for that? Yeah. Um, is it this idea that we want to get away from the very nature that defines us? You know, do we want to be more like the machine, mm -hmm. or do we want the machines to be more like us? So I think it's a, it's a philosophical difference that I have with him, and also sort of a, a, um, um, a practical difference in that I think that we can hijack the corticospinal tract or hijack sensory systems um, and give them computer components in a cyborg fashion. But this idea of uploading my consciousness mm -hmm. um, and my awareness of myself and the other people around me is something that is, is well beyond us now. But artificial intelligences were beyond us 50 years ago, and they're here now. Yeah. Um, kind of along those similar lines. So back to Musk, because he's got all the fun stuff. But <laughs> um, he also talks about creating like a neural lace, which I think Paul and I had talked about before mm -hmm. Paul found it. But <laughs> um, that could be implanted into the brain and affect language. So it could potentially be programmed to have you um, be able to speak whatever language that you want. Is that kind of along the same similar lines as a thought? Like, do we know how language works? Or you know, is that, that, that's, that is a wonderful uh, idea because it's very easy to confuse thought and language. Right. Because a lot of times we believe that that thought is language based. Mm -hmm. So I'm having a thought now. It's like some kind of subvocal speech. Okay. Mm -hmm. But not all thinking, of course, is language. Right. You have images. You have uh, just sort of nebulous ruminations that you don't even know what you're thinking, and then, then, you, then you paint a picture. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of things uh, that are going on there. Um, yeah. Okay, so, so the idea that thought and language are so similar. Mm -hmm. um, we are there with um, 
software that can you can get it on your iPhone where you right. can have a native speaker speak into the phone and the phone will translate it for you. So we're steps away from having that technology for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, I encourage you to go back and look at the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy yeah. and the idea of putting a fish in your ear that can translate <laughs> all languages. It's very similar. So I think Elon Musk also has a very good sense of humor and also a very um, rich understanding of, of our, our cultural heritage. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, very are, we are very close to ideas like that. Um, it would be something like a hearing aid, not necessarily an le- okay. electrode in the brain, that could take whatever language it is and at least translate it to you. Now, the second part, you speaking the next language, is probably going to have to be uh, done something with an external device okay. where you speak your native language and then what comes out is a voice that is a translation. Okay. So, uh, again, I think that's a really great idea and, and, and a very practical idea. Um, one part of it, we have the technology now. Another part of it, the technology is probably not going to be available for a while gotcha. see to me that it sort of comes back to the idea of downloading intelligence and that's where the complications come in is defining what intelligence is so to say that somebody's more intelligent than somebody else really convolutes the whole conversation but you could boil it down to a textbook so if you could take a textbook on the history of washington state is there a way that you could take that information, which is a lot more simple than the idea of growth and expansion and creativity, take the entire history of the state and in the future possibly upload that history into somebody's thought process where they have an understanding of it without having to go through the, the entire book and read it and understand it and reread it and sort of process it through their own thought patterns? Yeah, no, I don't think that that's, that's something to, to my understanding is, is not – possible because again it's it's we have a a disconnect between the input which is just text or language which is very much like thought and then the understanding of that so this is the same idea that 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 knowledge can be absorbed so I'll just sleep with my textbooks tonight (laughs) instead of reading them (laughs) and maybe through osmosis I'll be able to pass my exam tomorrow I think I tried that once I I think everyone has Um, but it's Knowledge and understanding are, are more than just having information in your head. What they require is for you to take that information and do something with it. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if I teach you something today, if you learn something today, mm-hmm. what you've learned is you've taken what you already know, you take what I'm telling you, what I'm trying to explain to you, and you're folding it into that old knowledge. And the parts that fit well with that old knowledge will be integrated. The parts that don't fit well with that knowledge will be rejected. And so you've learned something, but you've learned something through your previous understanding, your previous knowledge. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's why when people have political debates, it's impossible to change their mind. Because whether it's about vaccines, whether it's about climate change, or whatever it is, when they hear information that agrees with their prior knowledge, they incorporate that into their knowledge. When they hear information that disagrees with it, they have a tendency to reject it. That's just a a human uh, um, characteristic. Mm -hmm. Now, we try to fight against that in academia so we learn and in science so that we learn. But I I think this idea of just taking information and putting it in the head and then having information somehow integrated with our prior knowledge would be impossible. Now, what we could do is we could implement that in an external device and we could call it an iPhone and put it in our pocket (laughs) and and look up the history of Washington State (laughs) whenever we want. Yes. So that process of kind of having these biases in our own way of thinking really is a flaw. So if you have, uh, you already have an opinion on something, the flaw is that you're not going to hear somebody else's opinion effectively because you're going to just automatically categorize it as wrong. Um, 
I think that's where a machine, something like Watson, has a huge advantage over people is that it doesn't have these biases. It doesn't have a, a cultural group that it really relates to that sees another group as an enemy or sees somebody else as wrong and it is right, but instead takes all that information and processes it in a more accurate way. Is there any way that we could take advantage of a system like that so Watson doesn't have a bias? Is there any way that we can learn from that? And, of course, we can look at it and hope that we could emulate it in some way, but would there be some form of maybe an implant or something along those lines that could give us that information and not have it run through all of our systems that we've already uh, implanted that are, in fact, pretty flawed? That, Paul, that's an interesting idea, um, something I haven't really thought about. So Watson and other, these are, they're called expert systems. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and then what we do, how they become experts is that we model human expert thinking, and then we, we try to write algorithms that will mimic that in a computer format, and then we put those algorithms into a computer, and then the computer learns from experience by looking at thousands and thousands of data points. So these expert systems are built not to have these biases in them. Um, I think maybe a productive um, avenue would be to, to study, in essence, the psychology of these artificial intelligences. Mm-hmm. And then that, uh, that, that will inform our own prejudices and our own biases about how, where do we get these biases from. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because even when people know that they have biases, it's very difficult for them to change. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we were going to think about the computer as having a mind, which I'm, I'm really not comfortable with at this point, <laughs> um, they have a very open mind. Yeah. Um, and I think that's something that we can probably learn from. And so I really like this idea that you're, that you're coming across with here is that this information flow is kind of both ways, is that we're trying to learn, um, we're trying to teach computers to, to model human thinking, but at the same time, maybe we can take something about computer thinking, this algorithmic considering every detail equally, because the computer doesn't know what's important and what's not inc- important. The computer just knows weights um, and averages and things like that, okay? So perhaps it can be a new psychology of AI field. We could launch it ourselves. <laughs> we'll develop Perfect. a PhD program. Yeah. Um, and then inform people about how, how they get biases. Mm-hmm. Uh, there have been tremendous efforts for people to, to try and e- expose people's biases to them to get them to change their mind. But all that does is polarize them. That, yeah. that, that cements their beliefs, mm-hmm. okay? So perhaps we can start to study the thinking of these artificial intelligences like Watson um, and then applying those as at, at the educational level. Yeah. Interesting. In the past, uh, last episode actually on the vaccine discussion, not to get back into that, but we talked about the backfire effect. And there's something called the backfire effect that I read about where if somebody has an idea that's already ingrained in them and you present an op- an opposing fact or an opposing opinion to that idea, it almost cements their idea more strongly in their mind, which is a tremendous weakness because if, if you're wrong, you're wrong. You know, If there's a fact that can tell you that your opinion isn't accurate, then it should be a fact that you can take in and use to process a more accurate opinion that you have. But it seems like that's a huge weakness for people. You know, if somebody believes that the earth isn't round and you start telling them that there's scientific, like from NASA, say, that shows images of a round earth, they instantly 
jump into these conspiracy theories where NASA is part of the problem. And it just it sort of expands their idea more and it kind of convinces them of their idea more. Interesting question, because it's you, you, it seems as if it's it's counterproductive. But actually, that heuristic we've evolved as a survival heuristic. So that type of thinking has helped us survive in the past. Now what it's doing is causing things like um, uh, huge differences between people's thinking, for example, in our own country. Okay? But these things evolved, these heuristics evolved to help us survive. So let's say that you're in the woods and you see what you think is a bear. Okay? You're like, a bear. So you run away. Okay? Then you realize it was a cow. Okay? But you're still alive. So it's much better to confirm your hypotheses and run away than it is to stick around long enough because if you say, well, maybe it is a cow, I'll check it closely, and it turns out to be a bear, then you're dead. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so evolution has given us this propensity to, to, it's better to be wrong and alive than right and dead. And that's evolved into our political discourse of the day in that people are, are more concerned about confirming their own viewpoints than they are about listening to things in the, in the rest of the world. So to go back to your other idea, maybe this is another opportunity to educate ourselves using AI in a reverse sort of fashion um, in that do we necessarily need these heuristics to survive anymore? We probably don't. But just like um, uh, um, startle responses, they're very difficult to get rid of. But once you're aware of them, they can be suppressed. So perhaps there's another branch of AI that we can open up, or that can be opened up to think about how can we use artificial intelligent thinking to help improve human biases. But it's a biases that has evolved to, to help us survive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't help us survive now. Yeah. Now it's really it helps us with Facebook fights. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the mainly the <laughs> use for it. That idea has almost backfired on us because there's not many opportunities to encounter a bear in uh, an average person's life if you live in a big city and you're just going through everyday life, the survival instincts that you have are still ingrained in you, but you're not really using them. But they come into play in different things. And I think that people not only, as you've presented here, have those survival instincts and those tactics where they're going to avoid something just based on keeping themselves alive, but there's the enjoyment of a community feel. So rather than going to the woods with a group and saying oh there might be a bear let's run away from that bear people are now going to twitter and saying oh there might be this conspiracy that's true let's go towards a group that agrees with me because we can sort of form that and honestly it's kind of fun it's fun to have a conspiracy <laughs> i think and yeah. to have some sort of a theory that you can come with this fact or supposed fact and meet somebody else who's going to substantiate that and back you up and you can form this idea that you know more than somebody else. Yeah, it, it all goes back to like when we were two years old. You know, we, we want control of our environment. Mm -hmm. So when a toddler has a breakdown, it's because she has lost control of her environment, and now here's the way to get back in control of the environment is to pitch a fit. Yeah. Okay? <laughs> so we, it's, to be in control is something very important to us, and I think that goes back to this, our conversation about why people are reticent to adopt AIs specifically for their health care um, is, is that – we're giving up control in some sense, or, or at least there's, there's, there's a perception that we're giving up control. We're giving control over to a machine, um, and we don't, we don't like that. So we'd rather be able to control our, our own opinions uh, by forcing them onto others than actually having a, a real conversation. Mm -hmm. you know, so um, I think the artificial intelligence in medicine in the future is going to need this little push 
of us recognizing that giving up a little bit of this control actually can can give us an advantage. And it's the same type of way if, if I want to listen to you and you, you have a point to make um, that's different from mine. If we can sit and I can, we find some common ground. Okay, so we both like this baseball team. We both like this kind of food. We both like this kind of science. And then from there, we've, we have a point of agreement. So in other words, our, our intelligences are aligned. And then from that alignment, then we can seep in this little piece of information. Well, I think that this is true. Okay. Well, now, now I, have, I have some credibility. We have some mutual credibility because we have these, this common ground. And now maybe I can sway you or you can sway me. Um, and so I think that, that being able to adopt artificial intelligences in the future of medicine is going to take some of that, finding out, okay, these expert systems help us. Watson helps us, okay? These things that read mammograms help us. These things that can, can do blood tests and read them faster are going to help us. Now from there, maybe we can ease up a little bit and let these things take over a little bit more of the responsibility. Yeah, it kind of comes back to the idea of a collective intelligence. So I think that those expand on a collective intelligence massively. Another quote that I have here, I had to take down these quotes in this conversation because I knew if I didn't, then I would probably misquote them and who knows what I would say because some of them are so complex, like that brain one from before. That So this one was uh, not even a quote, but a law. So Metcalf's law, um, which is a, an idea of collective intelligence. It says the value of telecommunications networks is proportional to the square of the number of connected users of the system. So the way that I understood that, and I could be wrong, but the more people who have opinions or the more pieces of information that you have, the stronger your collective intelligence is. And a machine like Watson has an unlimited amount of power in that regard because it has everybody's intelligence, really. It has every opinion that's ever been published in its own little gathering space there and it can pull from those and pick the ones that match up with what it's looking at accurately rather than just taking things if you live in a community that has an opinion and that's formed your opinion then you're only going to look at things in that regard of well this is right and this is wrong but these machines don't have that because they have everybody's opinion they have all the facts and they can kind of use them to accurately maybe diagnose a disease or come up with a new idea or so on and so forth one thing that I definitely wanted to talk about, um, and this comes back to artificial intelligence and almost more just technological advances, was this idea of something called the DPU, which they have, uh, I think it's another Elon Musk <laughs> term that he came up with. Uh, the DPU is the die progress unit. And they use this example of taking George Washington and taking him from his time period and somehow transporting him to today and just putting him in the middle of, say, New York City. And they said that if you did that to somebody like George Washington or somebody from any time that he was around or somebody from that general time period, they would probably just die of shock. They wouldn't know how to process the things that they're doing. Now, the interesting part of that was they tried to look at somebody from George Washington's time in that time period or before and how far you'd have to go back to pull somebody and put them in George Washington's time to give them that same shock factor and it seemed like it was I mean you can't really think of a technology that was around with George Washington that wasn't around 5,000 years before him you'd have to go back to the the invention of 
farming or, you know, moving away from the hunter-gatherer societies. But even then, would that kill them? It would probably just be like, oh, that's cool. Yeah. I don't think they die <laughs> of shock. <laughs> so. No, this became really interesting in the thought of what is – so his DPU is, say, about 200 years, maybe less. So if you put him in the 1950s, he still may die of shock because of some of the advancements that were there. Today – if you were to take me and put me how many years down the line, where do you think that that, uh, that limit would be? Where do you think that you could place somebody like yourself in the future? How many years where you would see the things that have been sort of created in all these technological advances and just die of shock? Because I know it's a lot shorter than 200 years, and it's certainly a lot shorter than 10,000 years, which you might have to do for somebody else. Right. That, that's, I'm not sure that's an answerable question because, in essence, we're like the frog in the water, mm -hmm. and the water's getting warmer and warmer, and then someday it's going to boil and we're going to die, but we'll never notice the, the increase in temperature. Yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting to me that – so we, I've had several conversations with my colleagues about what is the future of medicine because in a medical school we want to be – teaching to where that future is. We don't want to be teaching past medicine. We want to be forward thinking. But then no one knows. So, for example, um, Paul, when, when you're in having your end-of-life care in the many, many years that is from now, the doctor that will be taking care of you isn't even born yet. Mm -hmm. And then the technologies and the education, things like virtual reality training, artificial intelligences within virtual reality, training surgeons, all these different ideas that, that seem far-fetched to us now are right on our horizon. So, so that child that's going to be born in the next few years that will be your doctor at the end of your life is going to be exposed to things that you and I can barely even imagine now. So I think that that's where that point is, but we're not going to notice it, okay, because we're going to be I mean, it, I always go back to get off my lawn and shaking a stick at somebody. <laughs> it's, we, we don't really notice that until it happens to us. So all mm -hmm. of a sudden we're in a world where we don't understand anything um, because everything has – technology has multiplied so quickly. Um, so I don't think that we are going to die from shock from that because uh, we've, we've been enculturated into that. Um, I mean, think of cell phones. You were talking about we carry our cell phone with us wherever we go. Yeah. My cell phone keeps track of the number of steps I take a day. Mm -hmm. It keeps track of a tremendous amount of things. Um, but I didn't have a cell phone when I was a child. Mm -hmm. But I saw in the airport recently, I saw a two-year-old. I see, think she was about two. She was in a, in a scroller, and she had an iPhone, a big one, and she was fascinated with that thing. And her yeah. parents had given that to her, and she was perfectly quiet and happy with it. That child, when she's – our age, when she's my age, is going to have technology skills that we can't imagine. Okay, yeah. mm -hmm. and then I look at my 85-year-old father who's still trying to figure out how to log on and off to Facebook. Yeah. So <laughs> it's I think it's a it's an incremental thing. So we're, we're going to be that's just a few years out that point where we won't be able to recognize it. But at the same time, we're moving so continuously through it, and we have this idea that our world kind of moves with us like a bubble, mm -hmm. you know, and so. I never get older. The people in front of me just seem to get younger and younger. Yeah, you yeah. know, so so there'll be that time when this new doctor comes along that's trained in a different way we can't imagine that has technologies we can't imagine that, that we're going to be in that point, but we're not going to notice it. I don't think. Yeah, it's the idea, the the thought of the baby with the iPhone is a really fascinating one too because anytime you see a kid, parents will hand their child an iPad. And it seems like it's just a natural ability from 
the get-go, it takes a few minutes, and they already figure out the interface, and they figure out how it functions. And I know that even in the time that I was born, I didn't have anything like that. And when I first got an iPhone, it it took some learning and expanding on what I was capable of to figure out how to use it. You know, going forward, now that children are being born with that technology already in hand, and the technology keeps advancing. How do you see that affecting not only the growth of artificial intelligence or medicine, but just sort of society as a whole? Well, that that generation, um, and it's it's not just the two-year-olds; it's the ten-year-olds and the fifteen-year-olds. Um, that generation is so ingrained in technology that they won't have the same biases that current generations have about adoption of AI, about this line between a human being and a machine. Because if you're born basically with an iPhone in your hand, which is practically what happens, Mm -hmm. then it becomes part of you. Mm -hmm. It becomes part of you. And when you don't have it, you feel odd. I remember my my battery died on my phone recently, um, and I had a moment of panic. (laughs) I was like, I'm disconnected from the entire world, completely forgetting that I have eyes and ears and legs (laughs) to go and get what I need. And most of the people I talk to are within walking distance anyway. But I had this moment of panic because I was going to be disconnected from the world. Mm-hmm. So these, these, these generations that are going to be taking care of us as we get older, those things are, are, are so ingrained in their existence that they're going to be more willing to accept the fact that someone has an artificial head or an artificial eye or an artificial ear. They, they won't be looked at as odd. They'll be, they'll be totally accepted. And this idea of going in um, and having a hologram uh, uh, examine you and diagnose you won't be so odd to them. It'll just be a natural continuation of their of their development. So I think this idea of technology uh, exponentially growing um, is not going to affect these current generations as much as it, as it affects past generations because the demarcation is not going to be nearly as noticeable. It will be the 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 leaps will be bigger, but they'll be of a certain kind that won't upset people as much Mm -hmm. so now instead of an iphone i have a chip in my ear instead of a credit card i have a chip in my finger you know now i'm a cyborg you know and to us that might seem very odd but those technologies exist right now and to future generations those are going to be be much easier to accept so i think that's one thing that's going to help the instantiation of artificial intelligence into medicine and the acceptance of it uh, and into other realms as well politics perhaps okay um, ethics um, is that these things are becoming more and more natural to the the growing population, um, and so the things that we have biases against will disappear, even though the leaps and bounds that will be taken by technology are things that we're sitting in this room right now, talking into microphones that are 100 years old, mm-hmm. we can't imagine. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking forward to it, yeah. as long as they don't get on my lawn. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks again for tuning into the Scientific Method. To be the first to hear our upcoming episodes, including our conversations with the nation's leading healthcare experts on topics such as opioids in America, healthcare reform, corporate funded research, and more, subscribe now.